Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My guest today on West Coast Live is Bill Bryson, whose new book is called The Life and Times of the Thunderbolt Kid, a memoir. His other books include A Walk in the Woods, I'm a Stranger Here Myself, In a Sunburnt Country, his story of Australia, Bryson's Dictionary of Troublesome Words, and his A Short History of Nearly Everything earned him many prizes and recognition. He lives in England with his children. He's here on our West Coast Live Backyard show. Thank you very much for stopping by. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be back in this part of the world. I was uh, reading your account of growing up in in Des Moines, and one of the lines that uh, I thought about was Gertrude Stein's, which is often applied, misapplied pejoratively to Oakland. There is no there there. And if you look at the rest of the quotation, it's about her going back to where she grew up in Oakland. And all the houses that she knew when she was growing up, all the stores were gone and replaced by new ones. And it was more kind of a plaintive cry of loss rather than a put down of Oakland. And I sort of thought of that line when I was reading about your upbringing in Des Moines and the Des Moines you grew up in no longer is there. Well, in, in a lot of ways it isn't. I mean, I think this is a peculiarly American thing that we um, we tend to to sweep things away and rebuild and then sweep them away again. And and uh, in a place like Des Moines, I mean, there's, there's very little that's that's a century old in Des Moines. I mean, very, very little. And, and, and a lot of things that seemed um, extremely good and venerable when I was a kid growing up are, are gone. Um, the, the, the one that I always remember is the Des Moines Theater, which was a, which was a Originally a vaudeville theater, but became a movie theater later, and and was this fantastic downtown palace of um, of dreams. And it was like being inside an Egyptian crypt. You know, it was just this fantastically overwrought Art Deco thing. Um, it had been built in 1918 for $750,000, which, it, just to put that in perspective, that's what Ebbets Field cost to build in Brooklyn at about the same time. So I mean, it was an extremely uh, expensive thing, a wonderful thing to have that was said to be the best theater between Chicago and the West Coast. And it, in 1966, they tore it down and, and put a parking lot in its place. And it's that kind of thing that happens again and again. And I think, I think, as I say, I think it's a, a, a kind of an American tragedy that we're not very good on the whole. I haven't been very good, uh, perhaps getting better now, but not, haven't been very good at holding on to our past. This memoir of, of growing up in the 50s spoke to me because it, it almost paralleled my upbringing. I, I think I'm a year younger than you are, but the television shows, the ridiculousness of Sky King, the, but the fondness for Zorro. And I mean, all these shows, I mean, come together. But along with your own personal memoir, you do something that you did so well in the book on Australia, which was you talk about for a while what a happy country the U.S. was, or certainly where it was when you were growing up. And you list the, you know, the great sort of economic booms, uh, the appliances. And that was something that also impressed you about Australia. And I wondered if that was part of the uh, appeal of Australia for you, that it, it reminded you of your upbringing. Yeah, and Australia, I think Australia has kept that that sort of uh, innocence somehow better because they are, maybe just because they're a little more remote. or, or um, but, but when I go to Australia, particularly when I leave urban Australia and go into smaller towns, I, I am very very much reminded of, of America the way it was in the in the 50s. And there was, in that time, in the 50s, in, 
in a place like Iowa, where I was growing up, there was a wonderful innocence about it all. Um, there was this prosperity like we'd never known before. And, of course, people from our parents' generation, yours and mine, they, you know, they had gone through a Great Depression. They'd gone through the, the Second World War. They'd had, um, you know, at least a decade and a half of, of some kind of privation and difficulties. And then suddenly the war is over and, and America is, is just in this incredibly privileged position economically because, you know, uniquely among developed nations, we didn't have any bomb damage. We didn't have anything to rebuild. All of our factories just had to stop producing bombers and tanks and start making refrigerators and, and televisions and so on. And we did. And and, and the prosperity that America enjoyed in, in those immediate post-war years was just unparalleled. We, you know, as, as I say in the book, 5% of the people on the planet are Americans and, and they were wealthier than the other 95% of people combined. You know, in the early 1950s, those 5% of Americans had 80% of all the world's electrical products. We, you know, we had it all. We, um, and while the rest of the world was still kind of digging out from under the rubble, we were um, an extremely privileged position. So that was the, the world that, that you and I were born into, and, to, and of course we benefited enormously. But the big factor that made it really different, I think, was that there was still this innocence about it, that our parents never expected to, to have this bounty of possibility presented to them. And they were overjoyed to have it, and so um, they weren't spoiled by materialism, rather in the way that we are now. They, they, you know, they, they, they were overjoyed. And, and as I say in the book, you know, when they went out and bought a, a new refrigerator or something, they had the neighbors around to look at it. And then the next week, the neighbors would have have something new themselves, and they'd have you around. And and it was this kind of shared delirium of of um, you know commercial prosperity that was that was really very very enchanting. I get the sense that when you're out on the road, it's the it's the human story, the it's it's the giant kind of plaster of Paris figurine cafe uh, in 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 Australia that attracts your attention. And yet, when you're back in the library, it's some of the fascinating statistics that grab you in in, in kind of a different place of your mind. But it you meld them together in some way. Well, that's very nice of you to say, such. I, 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 I mean, I do love statistics I, uh, um, and, and facts. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of helplessly in their thrall sometimes, particularly when they, you know, support a, a point that I'm trying to make. Um, so, so I, but what, what struck me about, about doing the research in the 50s was that, um, personally, I remembered it, the 50s as a time of, you know, supreme tranquility. And, and um, you know, I'd, we didn't worry about anything in, in Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, and certainly I didn't have any anxiety in my life at all, at any at any level. Uh, it was an extremely happy childhood, and there was nothing in the external world that that, that seemed worrisome or problematic to me. But now when I, when, when I went to the library and started reading newspapers and, you know, Time and Life magazines and things like that from that period, it was just it was just one anxious moment after another. I mean, there was an awful lot of, of real fear and, and ugliness in, in the world throughout the 50s. So it was this, it was this strangely bifurcated decade in, in which, on a personal level, particularly if you were small, I think it was a time of great happiness. How much of that is about the protected nature of childhood, then? Well, I think probably a lot of it is because I think probably wherever you, wherever you, if you have a happy childhood, wherever it is, whatever the circumstances are, it probably seems as if it was a fairly idyllic time. I mean, I know people who grew up in the Blitz in London who thought it was a wonderful time to be a kid. Uh, you know, they were, and, and um, because they weren't, they didn't know enough to be frightened of bombs raining down. To them, it was a kind of uh, just an explosive grandeur that was going on around them all the time. There was always this possibility that the school would be blown up. You know, that, so there was there was actually kind of a, a great scope for joy in, in it because they were just too small and innocent to realize how horrible and ugly it was. So I think I think there is that. I mean, there's, there's, if, if you if you're reflecting upon a happy childhood, you're, you're inevitably going to be looking at the period with with some very heavily tinted spectacles. 
The Willoughbys, friends of yours, managed several times to almost completely blow up their family home. <laughs> they did. There's, and every bit of that is true. I, I, I swear that, um, you know, I... I, I I'm happy to to confess that that from time to time I I, I um, indulge in exaggeration for comic effect. But with the Willoughbys, it was absolutely not necessary. But they really did. These two boys nearly did blow up the house. They were. Um, so in 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 Iowa, if you peed on the radiator, the kids weren't summarily executed all the time. No, no, that was an exaggeration. But with the Willoughbys, with the Willoughbys were these. They were scientific geniuses. There were four brothers, and they were absolutely. They were the smartest kids I've ever met, and and they they could do. All, all of these things, almost all of them, on the on the verge of of badness in one way or another. But I mean, they made their own explosives, and and they had this idea that they would make a a bomb, a harmless bomb, buried under the uh, under the lawn of our of our junior high school, and have it go off with a timer at just as school was letting out, so that there would be this kind of a, a great eruption of confetti and and a big bang um, to greet all the kids as they came out of the doors of the school. But what they've they said it and went to bed, uh, intended to take it up at three in the morning. What they forgot was that, um, they, that it went off in their room. And so um, this enormous bang, which, which actually more or less knocked the house off its foundation <laughs> and, um, and filled the, the house with smoke and, and got the fire department out, which was a, a kind of weekly event with the Willoughby family. It was, they were amazing people. I was in Des Moines on just this past Saturday, and, and um, all four of the brothers came to an event I did there, so it was nice to see them again. Any any uh, seared uh, eyebrows? No, no, they seem to have calmed down quite a bit. <laughs> but they were unbelievably smart. I mean, they were they were the only people in the world who could really get full value out of a chemistry set. You know, uh, uh, they 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 really understood everything to do with um, you know how things worked and how things fit together. And I, I was uh, completely in their awe the whole time I knew them. And yet, that's a prank that nowadays would get people in probably jail. Well, yeah, there was, I, I mean, I think there was an assumption in those days that when you did things, when you did something bad, that it, you didn't really mean to be bad. I mean, you didn't, it wasn't actually necessary f- um, to, to send them away for counseling or to, or to imprison them or do anything. Most of the things we did was just kind of hijinks. And, and, um, and so it was, it was kind of a nice time to, to try your hand at things like that because the, the consequences were not as severe as they seem to be now. There's an episode you retell um, with with quite uh, with a lot of flair of of a, a time when you were forging, making uh, fake IDs on the back of your father's checks. Uh, it so happened that the address of your father was on the back of these IDs from the checks. Al- along the way, uh, I was thinking, do you let your kids read this book, and and how do you explain these activities to them? Is is it, is it a, a guidebook of what to do, what not to do, or if if, or how to interpret your own childhood? <laughs> no, I've always held myself up to my own children as an anti-role model, uh, and, and I make it quite clear to them that uh, this is the way I did, and, and this is what I did with my with my upbringing, and and I got away with it. But don't uh, don't imagine for a moment that you will, because first of all, I wouldn't let them, uh, and secondly, the world won't let them, uh, which is which is kind of a shame because I think, you know, you have to be a lot more. You have to behave with a lot more rectitude now in in all aspects of life. And gr- growing up is a lot more serious business now than it was in our day. You you have to be a good student. I mean, if you if you if you want to do well in life, you you have to um, have you know be pretty outstanding academically right from an early age. You know, uh, uh, just to keep moving on at at, at an advanced level. And um, that's something that wasn't so necessary when I was a kid. I mean, you could you could kind of mess up and and recover later, which is exactly what happened with me. 
Is there a reason you choose to raise your family in England rather than the U.S. that has to do with educational pressures in some way? I mean, each country has their own criteria for success. No, there isn't any. There isn't any um, really practical reason at all. My wife is English. My kids were all born in England. We've, we've, we've lived in both Britain and and America a great deal over the last thirty years, and um, and and we'll probably continue bouncing around between the two countries. So there isn't. It's. I mean, the only reason we live in one is because we can't live in both simultaneously. I mean, you have to choose one one or the other. And um, we we lived in New Hampshire from nineteen ninety five to two thousand and three, and we didn't. When we went to New Hampshire in 95, it wasn't because of any sort of dissatisfaction with Britain. And when we left in 2003, it wasn't because of any sort of dissatisfaction with New Hampshire. On, on balance, I, I, I suppose I'm spending more of my life in Britain, and, and, and therefore the, the assumption would be that I prefer to live there somehow, but, but only, you know, only marginally, really. And, and, and the things that make me like living in Britain are just some practical considerations that... Um, because I've lived there so long, most of my long-term friends are, are there. My best friends from you know the days when I worked in London are, are all there. And I do perversely like the climate a lot, much better than New Hampshire, where you had snow on the ground five months of the year. In in England, um, you can you know you can go outside even in January and and do stuff in the yard. You know you can dig and. Um, and, and get fresh air. So, are you a gardener? Yeah, we have three acres with the house we bought, and and it really is fairly um, demanding, in, in a happy way. I enjoy doing it very very much, and um, and one of the because I work at home, I don't you know I don't get out unless I unless I get up from my desk and go out, and and the the, the trouble I seriously had in New Hampshire was that you know three o'clock I would knock off and I'd go downstairs and I'd to go out and for a walk and get some fresh air and I, by the time I got all my boots and everything on it would be dark outside and, and 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 in any case there's nothing much you can do except just go walking and crunching through snow and um in England as I say it's it's a, a much milder climate there's hardly any ever any snow at all and you can go out and you know throughout the year and, and do productive things outside so I, I I like that a lot one of the things that's in Henry and me can I speak for you here if I if I say this is what is it is the amount of walking that you do uh-huh. in the course of your books. For instance, in Australia, you know, you would walk along what it seemed like 20 miles of strip malls to try to go find a mansion. And and we were we were wondering, I mean, is, do you really do all that much walking? Yeah, I do. I do. I love to walk. Um, it's the one thing I can I can really do. I mean, I you know, I have uh, I mean, you're, you're sitting here looking at me. You can see that I'm not the fittest of human beings, but but it's one thing I can do without um, you know, my legs have been very good to me, and and I can walk and walk and walk, and and it's it's by far the most enjoyable way to experience a new place. I think um, the things you see when you when you're moving around at, at walking speed are just are, are so much more um, detailed and interesting and and memorable than than if you're moving any other conveyance, uh, because any, anything else is just too fast. I mean, even a bicycle really is too fast for from my liking, and so the the thing I do whenever I'm particularly when I'm writing a travel book, but, but whenever I'm just at, at liberty, um, you know, if I had an off, uh, the afternoon off here today, the thing I would do is go out and walk and just explore. And then at what point do you pick up your notebook? Are you jotting things where you, while you're, uh, you know, walking along, or do you rely on your memory? Well, if it's a travel book, um, qu- quite a lot of the time I just rely on my memory because uh, I found that when I, when I was first started doing travel books, I found that I was taking notes all the time to the extent that I actually... Re- Stop myself once writing my notebook. Sat 
in cafe writing a notebook. You know, I was it was actually I'm spending time just recording that I was was recording notes, and um, and it was getting in the way of having the experiences. And so what I've tended to do in in later years is is um, I will I will take notes on anything that I think I'll need to recall verbatim later. If I heard a snatch of, of song lyrics on the radio or a, an inscription on a gravestone or something like that, I, I will certainly get a notebook out and write it down. But m- for most of the rest, I think your memory is a reliable enough guide. I mean, I'm not writing guidebooks after all. So if, if I um, say that a, a building had a red roof and it was on the northwest corner and it turns out that it was a green roof on the southwest corner, for my, for my purposes, that doesn't really matter as long as I, you know, am honestly recalling it. And um, so I don't worry too mu- too much about the the kind of detailed accuracy. It's it is faithful to my memory, uh, and I think that's the main thing. We're uh, making up some ribald lyrics to "Waltzing Matilda" as you're driving along a long stretch in Australia, which had Henry and me howling as we were reading as you were reading aloud to us in the in the car, and. Were you like doing that on the fly, making up those lyrics? Well, I, I, I had a long. I mean, you, you know, I, in Australia because it's such a big country, I was spending a lot of time behind the wheel of a car. And Australia is a wonderful country to drive in because it's so empty, particularly if you get away from the coast roads and go inland just a little bit. And and that's what I was doing. And I was, and, but I, but it's also it becomes really quite boring, uh, and and kind of mind numbing because it's it is uh, you're just hour after hour of driving without a lot going on. And so um. There was a day when I did seriously start uh, um, making up my own lyrics to Waltzy Matilda because the, the the actual lyrics make no sense. I mean, it's a, it's a it's a surreal song that um, that it, that um, is very hard for an outsider to understand at all. And when you when somebody explains to you what all the, the different terms in the lyrics mean, this, the song doesn't make much sense. And um, so I decided that to, to improve upon it and make my own lyrics up. And I spent more or less a whole day doing that. So if I gave the impression in the book that it was somehow spontaneous, that's that's untrue. Uh, it, it was That was a day's work for, for me. But it was actually just you know sitting behind the wheel of a car and, and amusing myself by making them up. You make a point in, in your new book about the, the Thunderbolt kid that uh, Des Moines was designed sort of before cars. I get the sense that by the time you had sort of grown up and left, you know, Victorians were torn down to make way for motor lodges, uh, that the car had really supplanted. And for somebody who loves walking, um, I mean, the landscape can sometimes be unfriendly, but I think sort of unfriendly in, in many urban areas now because yeah, of the car. I, I mean, I, I do think that the, the car is the, the downfall of modern life, and I think that's particularly true in, in America. Um, that we, it, I mean, obviously, we all need cars, and, and cars have got to be incorporated into our existence in some way. But what we've, what's happened is we've allowed them to take over. Is we, we live in a world that's built for cars, not built for people. I really do believe that. And and almost everywhere when you go walking, um, you, you as a pedestrian are, are continually inconvenienced in order that the traffic can go by unimpeded. And I really do think it ought to be at least 50-50, if not entirely the other way around. And... Um, and, and we and we put up with just a huge amount of ugliness in order to, to be able to park these great heaps of metal at places that are convenient for us. And and I think that's a sad thing. I mean, I'm not just talking about America. That I think this is becoming a global thing. That that our top priority is 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 being able to go everywhere with these you know two thousand pounds of of metal and and then leave it where uh, wherever it's convenient for us to leave it in order to to run our errands. And I just think that's a a, a great tragedy because what it's resulting in is a world that is. 
is not only, you know, kind of grotesquely polluted and all of that, but it's just it's just ugly. And it's designed, I mean, all signage everywhere is designed to be read at 50 miles an hour from a passing car. And so it has to be big, and it has to be strident, and, and it has to compete with other signs that are doing that. And so the result is, you know, wherever you drive in, in, in the world, um, certainly in any kind of freeway-type situation, you're just looking at just miles and miles of real ugliness. There are some signs on crosswalks around here that were put up to uh, where, where lights flash so the pedestrians can cross safely at the crosswalks. But there's a warning sign that says, cars may not stop. <laughs> and I looked at that and I thought, is that giving permission for the cars? <laughs> cars don't have to stop. They may not stop, you know. Uh, they might not stop. I mean, there's also something about the way signs are even phrased in some way that you'd like them to be a little more precise. Warning, they won't stop. <laughs> Well, there was, I saw an example um, a, a short while ago. I was in Michigan, and some poor person was killed on a, on a, a very busy, you know, uh, six-lane road uh, trying to cross from a shopping center on one side to a shopping center on the other side. And, um, and, and there was no pedestrian facilities at all, and this person misjudged and got hit and killed. And they were interviewing the local police chief and asking him if there shouldn't be pedestrian crossings installed on this road. And he said, as far as he knew, no one had ever tried to do that before. You know, uh, just to try and walk from one from one commercial side of the road to the other commercial side of the road. Because, you, you know, it's all designed to get in a car and drive. We drive from place to place. I mean, every shopping experience, we expect to be able to drive from door to door. That's, that's crazy and really, really unnecessary and, and completely unhealthy. Well, I have uh, an amazing statistic for you. Um, that only three out of uh, three out of four Americans believe that dinosaurs and humans coexisted at one time. Really, that yeah. is that is kind of scary, isn't it? Somebody told me in a uh, in a bookstore there were. Um, this is a few years ago, but they were talking about amusing things that customers had asked them for. And one of the, one of them that I recall was somebody coming in and saying they wanted a, um, a book of photographs of dinosaurs because they were sick of seeing drawings. It was all they could ever find was drawings. <laughs> the uh, the Thunderbolt Kid is uh, is a guy who, uh, in your childhood, was able to zap people, make people disappear in a puff of smoke if they treated you rudely, unkindly or they didn't treat you as the grown-up that you expected to be. As a grown-up, what does your internal Thunderbolt kid like to zap nowadays? Oh, uh, well, it's, it's usually when I'm a pedestrian and somebody honks at me for, um, you know, for car, for, for getting in their way, for, for not moving fast enough, that's, that's a great irritant to me. There's a lot of people in the world that really expect you to kind of sprint when you cross the street. And when you're my age and my shape, uh, I am moving as fast as I can, believe me. And to be honked at is, um, is, is something that would earn a, a, a good um, dose of carbonizing rays from, from me. Um, and and uh, just, just sort of the discourtesy in, in everyday life. Uh, fortunately, we don't get a lot of it, but just you know, from time to time, you hold the door open for somebody in a, in a department store or something, and they'll just walk right through it as if you're a doorman, and they don't even see you, don't even say thank you. I hate that, so I eliminate people who do that. Unless I think you, you point out... Because I, 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 I cease doing that because I can't tell which of them buy books, which is sort of true. Um, I mean, I, 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 did, I, I was watching... Um, I was standing in King's Cross Station in, in London the other uh, a few months ago, and um, there was a, a few years ago there was a horrible fire in King's Cross, and a lot of people died. And so ever since then, they've been obsessive about no smoking there. And I find smoking in an enclosed place offensive anyway. And some guy was, was smoking, and, and I was about to go out and remonstrate with him for that. Uh, and, and 
didn't because I just was too early in the morning. I didn't want to, you know, provoke a scene or anything. But I just thought it was, you know, he was kind of obnoxious to be smoking in 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 this um, the waiting area where you shouldn't be smoking. And he put his cigarette and and looked at me and he came over and had me sign a book for him. <laughs> so it was a good thing I didn't, you know, I, I kept I kept a fan. I didn't do the decent thing, but I, I kept a reader. Yeah, well, that's good. There are times when you've you've had imaginary conversations with hotel desk clerks. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Well, my dream, my absolute fantasy, is that is that um, the manager of certain hotels, often very good hotels, so that, but you know, a, a manager of, of a, a good hotel will open, come home from a long day of work, open his door, and I'll be standing in the hallway, and I'll be able to say to him, "I'm sorry, sir, but your house isn't ready for you yet. <laughs> Can you come back in two hours?" In your uh, your short history of nearly everything, which wasn't necessarily short, although I suppose it could have been really Durantish, uh, is is that there was uh, just this astonishment at the brilliance of people in the world, whether they were uh, naturalists like Darwin or physicists and thinkers like Einstein. I mean, there was just this: isn't the world an amazing place? And can you believe how they figured this out? Isn't this a marvel? Which I think gets lost in our kind of cynical age, that we forget what achievements there were of some of the great intellectuals and, and people who were kind of off the beaten track in earlier generations. Well, I, th I think that's a failing of textbooks everywhere and always has been, is that they, t they tend to overlook the magic of discovery and invention and, and, and just human progress, that there's a, a certain amount of wonder there that um, somehow textbook writers seem to overlook. And, and the thing that I got very interested in when I was doing a short history of nearly everything was, was not just knowing what we know, but how do we know what we know? How do these people figure these things out? I, I find that the really amazing. I mean, it, I mean, it's quite amazing that, you know, the Earth is, is three and a half billion years old. But what is even more amazing to me is that somebody could work out that it's, it's that age. Uh, or, or, or somebody could work out what's going on at the very center of the Earth, a place we've never been and have no way of getting to. So how do they know this, you know, molten ball of nickel or whatever it is right down there in the very middle of it? How do they deduce these things? So how do they know what the temperature is on the surface of the sun? Um, or where the continents were, were arrayed 300 million years ago? All of that kind of thing. I find, this, I find that the, the figuring that out is as as amazing as the as the actual fact of it, and um, and 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 really all the book is well, the only thing that distinguishes that book from lots and lots of other books on science is that that's where I went with it. It was just to you know how did they, who did this, who who was the person behind this, and how did they figure it out, and I think a lot of people responded to that because there is this sort of craving to to know the the, the hows as well, as well as the whats. There's a characteristic I guess I would describe to both your the sort of the serious books and, and the very funny books, uh, and whether it's, you know, walking through the Appalachians or uh, poking through, you know, Europe, you're not inhibited about going up and t knocking on the glass of whatever it might be, metaphorically or literally. Well, it's, it's one of the joys of doing what I do is that I, I get to spend a lot of time uh, investigating things and, get, and and call it work. I get paid to do it. And... Um, and and that's that to me is the great joy of, of being a writer. I, I haven't got the kind of focus that would allow me to do something, to to do any one of these things for the whole of my life. I could never be, a, you know, a plant scientist and just spend the whole of my life looking at, at, at certain kinds of plants, or be like those people who who spend the whole of their life studying one species of snail or something like that. I just haven't got that kind of focus and commitment. 
But what I can do is that sort of thing for for two or three or four years at a time. I can get into Australia intensely for for a, a period and in, and indulge my curiosity about it, and then move on to something else. And that's what I get to do. And and so that to me is just a a, a, a real treat. When I'm working on a subject, I tend to get so interested in it that it becomes reach a point where there, it's almost obsessional. I mean, there becomes a point where I, there isn't anything about that subject that I wouldn't be potentially interested in knowing. Um, and, and and that's that I, I get a lot of pleasure from. You end up having a lot of cardboard boxes with research materials that you end up having to store? Yeah, uh, yes. And um, and and I, it's a real struggle for me to be organized. It's uh, I, tr- I try very hard to be completely organized and, and to be methodical, but i just one of those people who puts something down and then forgets where I put it. And I often... Uh, I get distracted and, and kind of forgetful, and I will often, I'll file uh, three pieces of paper, but uh, two of them will be in the right file, but the third one will just be kind of attached to them, and, and so it'll be essentially lost forever, and I spend a lot of time hunting around for that one piece of paper that I've lost or mislaid, um, slightly drive myself crazy with that, but it is necessary to be, when you're dealing with a big subject, it is necessary to try to be organized. As a, as a writer in structuring your, your material, uh, one of the, one of the, the through lines, I guess, in it is is uh, Bill Bryson character, um, and you know, for instance, I'm thinking of you know how when you because of jet lag you fell asleep in Australia and you you know there were pools of drool around and I mean you're you're very self-deprecating about yourself and self-effacing and you poke fun of yourself a lot and I wonder at what point as you were writing your your books did you say I could put me in 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 this way was it there always from the beginning. Well, yeah. I, I mean, all of my travel books, which are the, are the funny ones, really, I mean, the ones that are set out to be comical, are, you know, in the first person. They're about me. They're about my experience. And and they're partly in in response to um, a particular kind of travel writing that was 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 prevalent when, when I started out, uh, which was, uh, um, and I was slightly, to which I was slightly resistant, and that's the idea of the, the travel writer being this omniscient, essentially flawless person and and I remember reading a book about uh, by, by a very uh, very respectable and uh, an admirable travel writer somebody I do actually admire but in this book um, she she mentioned being in Reykjavik and she mentioned something that, that was in th- that morning's newspaper in Reykjavik without explaining how she possibly could have been reading Icelandic or you know and and I just thought there was a kind of there's a kind of smugness about that approach that is you know that they, they they just sort of leave you with the impression that they know everything all the time, including evidently how to you know interpret an Icelandic newspaper, mm-hmm. and and I just thought well that's not that's not the experience I have when I travel most of the time when I travel I'm I'm confused and lost sometimes elated but often bewildered sometimes really quite frightened and worried and certainly concerned and uncomfortable and you know there's a whole range of emotions and and it seemed to me that an awful lot of the travel books only were dealing with with one half of that range uh, and not not dealing with the kind of worrisome half and the, the everyman part so i just set off to do to to write more or less honest reflections of this is what it's like when i travel and i think that people responded to that because it, it is that is the, the experience that most of us have we we you know, we love to travel as human beings. I think, you know, many, many people are curious and interested to travel and, and find it worth the while. But also a, a huge part of the experience is, is slight anxiety and discomfort and and confusion and, and not knowing, am I, am I on the right train? Is this the right, am I in the right place? You know, if I, uh, and and that, that, that obviously ha- leaves a lot of scope for humor. So there's, a, for instance, a scene in one of your travel books in Europe, you're in an elevator 
I think it's with some Japanese businessman or something, and you start having conversations. They don't understand you. You don't understand them. I mean, at the time, are you thinking, this is good material, I'm going to make this funny, uh, or, or does it shape it later on in your, in your writing? That was in Liechtenstein, I think. Or was it in Italy? I don't or, know. No, it was in a really small country. I don't, I don't remember it at all. Oh, anyway, you were on your way up or down from the bar, trying to get a meal, and the restaurant was getting closed, and so on and so forth. But I, I, when you're when you're experiencing this, is it do you experience it as as funny, and and I, or is it when you're back sitting down at the keyboard that you you, you it comes out funny? No, almost never does it seem like material in the making when it's happening. Uh, partly because I'm just too distracted. Uh, uh, um, very occasionally, I, I do think, oh, you know, this I'm this is a wretched experience I'm living through, but at least it'll make a, a passage of the book. But that's very rare. Most of the time, it does. I don't quite connect. I mean, I'm so preoccupied with just trying to, you know, I am lost and I'm and, and I'm frustrated and and confused and I want to get somewhere and I'm not thinking, oh, you know, one day I'll be able to stand back from this and laugh at it and it'll make an amusing passage in the book. So the the. It's it's very rare that that I'm thinking about the book when I'm having the experiences. When you, where are you going to launch yourself into the world next? Well, I've got a, I've got a, a slightly unlikely project that I've got to finish off. I've been working on from time to time, sort of in the background of my life for the last three years or so, and that's uh, a concise biography of William Shakespeare, which I agreed to do for a series of concise biographies of, of famous people, mostly written by people that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be writing on that subject, and. Um, just by chance, I ended up being assigned William Shakespeare, and it's been it's been wonderful. I mean, what's what's the best sort of unknown word that you've come across in this? Unknown word? Yeah, that you unknown to you. Well, in terms of Shakespeare, in, 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 in doing your research and working this, Shakespeare, I mean, he coined so many words. Yeah, I'd have to I'd have to stop and think. I couldn't I couldn't honestly tell you that. But but it, it is so interesting that um, you know that we know so little about. Him. I mean, I mean, we, we, I mean, that's kind of famous that we know very little about him. But, but I didn't realize just how little we know. I mean, almost everything about his day-to-day life is is based on presumption. You know, the, the the number of days that you can actually place William Shakespeare and say he was it was there's no doubt that he was in London on this particular day is is you know a, a dozen or so in his whole life. There's uh, most of the rest of the time we can assume that, that he was in Stratford because he was born there. We know that. Um, but we don't even know which day he was born, but you know, so that he must have spent his childhood there. But, but he, equally, he could have been whipped away and you know, grown up in Glasgow or something, for, for all the record tells us. So it's just kind of interesting how, how little we actually know about him. Shakespearean Glaswegian. There he is. <laughs> Bill Bryson's new book is called The Life and Times of the Thunderbolt Kid, a memoir of growing up in Des Moines, Iowa, and you can see what shaped him and his visions for his, uh, his other books. He got a desire to get out in the world. And he's gone back and uh, taken a look at Iowa as it was to sort of travel through it as a young boy growing up in the, in the 50s. Thank you very much for being here with us on West Coast Live. No, thank you both. Thank you for having me here. This is Sedge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here. And we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.